What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. The Fifth and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution of the United States guarantee the right against self-incrimination, the right to remain silent, and the right to counsel. A crime wave swept California in the late 1970s. Several young girls were abducted, raped, and murdered. Michael D. Matson was convicted of these crimes and sentenced to death. Law clerk by day, family man by night. In 1982, Jim Potts, a brilliant, idealistic African-American law student, is honored when one of his professors recruits him to assist in writing a death penalty appeal on behalf of a serial killer. Potts discovers a loophole in the case that somehow had been overlooked, one that could not only get Matson off death row, but once presented to the Supreme Court of California, could release him to rape and murder again. When Potts confides in his pregnant wife, she says if Matson goes free, their marriage is over. But if Potts quits the case or withholds information, he violates his duty to client and constitution and risks his career before it even begins. A moral dilemma with no good way out. To avoid losing his family and releasing pure evil back into the world, Potts must be smarter than his options. He must find a way to keep his family together, fulfill his duties, and keep Matson behind bars. But can he? The book we're featuring this evening is Defending a Serial Killer, The Right to Counsel, with my special guest attorney and author, Jim Potts. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for this interview, Jim Potts. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is a remarkable story and a very unique perspective you um, have in this book. As you do in the book, let's talk about Michael D. Matson. Well, he was he was definitely a piece of work. There's no doubt about it. You know, um, I, I think that what happened to him was that he was a product of his environment um, as a child, in all honesty. He went through 
um, step parent situation, and not all step parents are bad. So let me make make let me make that clear. But in his particular case, you know, as a child, his mother uh, started noticing certain things about him, certain things that he was doing. Some people say that he, because of the fact that he was abused by his stepfather, uh, physically abused, that that had a definite impact on him, uh, without a doubt. So at a very early age, uh, he was using drugs, and that was part of the problem. He would he would he would drink a, a case of beer, and you're talking about in his teens, as an example. And he would get into all kinds of these different drugs that, you know, where you hallucinate, things of that nature. So his childhood was a definite factor, in my opinion, in terms of who he turned out to be. And even even the court-appointed uh, psychologist uh, related back to the same uh, time frame that he may have been impacted mentally because of the way that he was abused and the things that he saw. Because he not only he he was not only abused, but his mother was abused by this by this person as well. Mm-hmm. So those are factors for him. But his mother started noticing things about him as well, uh, with him wearing um, female clothing, as an example. One time she caught him in a field and he was wearing a dress and um, other things that he would do that you know that concerned her. He had this one episode where he had uh, a young friend of his where he actually uh, made the kid strip down, whipped the kid, and stuck a broomstick up his rear, you know, things of that nature. And so, again, this was at a very, very young age and made the kid walk home like that. You know, what was interesting and what I didn't find uh, was what the parents of that child even did or how they reacted to any of that. Unfortunately, I don't have that. His mother was the one that related the information from that perspective in terms of what happened. Um so he just developed, in my opinion, into this monster, and I think it really did start with the abuse that he, you know, that he received, as well as the abuse that he saw. Now he may have used alcohol and drugs as an escape, in my opinion, but I think those things eventually overtook him. So he he, as he moved along, he ended up going into service. Uh, he was up in uh, Oregon. And when he was up there, he basically went AWOL. And while he was while he was away, when he wasn't supposed to be, he actually kidnapped uh, this young lady and her brother, both of them. And as a result of that, he was convicted. He raped her, robbed her, uh, basically made the brother leave and drove off in the car and took her to a secluded place. So he eventually got caught, and he had to do time uh, for that crime, obviously. Now, the purpose, people argue that the purpose of, of uh, you know, when you go to jail, you're supposed to rehabilitate, et cetera. But the sad part in his particular case was that he didn't rehabilitate because is what he did was, was in his mind, he developed this, this attitude that in the future, if he, in fact, engages in the same behavior, which he intended to do, then he would kill his victims so that the victims could not come back and testify against him. And that's the sad part about this with him, is that his mind, in my opinion, was so demented at that time that it was just a matter of time when he would um, go even further and include murder 
and his actions. So I hope that answered your basic question on him. Mm-hmm. You talked about, you mentioned and you write about a, a counselor named Jacobs that spoke to him about 12 months before any of this killing occurred. And she had some dramatic conclusions um, based on what he had said to her regarding women and his hatred for them. He, the reason why I think he hated women was because from what I understood from the relationship he had with his mother is that his mother did not protect him from the abuse of the stepfather. Right. And as a result of that, he was psychologically damaged. Because, and again, I'm not a psychologist, let me make that clear, but he resented that. Mothers normally, and I'm just speaking in general now, are supposed to protect their children. And I think children look for that protection. And when it wasn't there... I think that that psychologically damaged him. And that's why he hated he hated women. But, you know, the odd part about that, Dan, is that if he hated women so much, why did he dress in women's clothes? I mean, even when he got captured, there, were female, there was female attire in the car. And the mm-hmm. mother, when the police officers called her, she told him, oh, yeah, this, yeah, you, yeah, there would be women's clothes in his car because she knows that he dresses women. So think about that for a second. Where's the conflict there? It just, it, once again, it's just a point that proves that he was just so mentally scrambled, so to speak, that he he, he turned into this monster. Because if, if if he hated women, why would you dress as a woman? You have to wonder. You call them a gamester, and... But still, um, he was deemed competent to stand trial by a judge. He is a he was a gangster. He was a good-looking guy, and he would use those looks to lure these young women in, including his very first victim. All of them, actually, except for the very last one when he got caught in Las Vegas. That one was just was just a forced situation. But the other ones were a forced situations. He used his looks and his charm, so to speak, to lure these women in. And that's the sad part. But that's why I said he's a gangster. He is. He was. You write in July 1978 in Los Angeles, you and your wife, Betty, were expecting your first child. It was a complicated pregnancy. You were working full-time and attending law school five nights a week. Um, there's a lot of pressure on you. And tell us about uh, newscast that you happened to view at that time. We were we were watching TV, and, and just to back to back up for a second, yeah, Betty was bedridden at two months with the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So for her, she was very in tune to this business about having a child and things of that nature. So basically, what was going on? We were watching. Uh, we're just watching the news, as people do in the evening, fixing dinner, whatever the case may be. And we saw the situation where uh, the little girl had been kidnapped. Or, no, excuse me, was missing. Let's start off with that, was missing. Right. And that there was a manhunt that was going on. Uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department was handling that. And, you know, they were talking about the fact that this little girl 
I was missing from the uh, from the community park that she and her uh, sibling was at, and everybody's looking for it basically. And she was only nine years old. So as you as you can imagine, you got a nine year old is missing. And these days, it doesn't matter whether they're nine or whatever the age is. People are going to try to do a manhunt. They go door to door, and they start searching. So L.A. County Sheriff's Department was on the news talking about um, that we had a nine year old girl missing. And they wanted to um, put the information out there. Have it, you know? Have you seen her? I, th- I think we've all seen those types of uh, newscasts. Even today, you see them sure. uh, from time to time. So that caught our attention. Now, at, at first, it was just a little girl missing, which is always a sad, a sad situation. Uh, they suspected something was going on, but they did, they did not know. And then, I believe it was the maintenance person who said that he that he had seen this particular vehicle, okay, and that he thinks that the girl may have gotten into the vehicle, which is even worse at that point, because then it turns it turned from a missing child to a kidnapped missing child, and that makes a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. So, of course, we discussed it. I mean, people, you, you know, you're laying there, and it's, oh, my God, nine-year-old girl missing, possibly abducted, um, and those kind of things um, will always, you know, you know, make the normal civil person uh, very upset. I think I mentioned in the book, I'm trying to remember if I mentioned in the book or not about the fact that the same child that Betty was pregnant with, uh, that's, that's my oldest son now, he was almost abducted out of the grocery store. Yeah, so, you know, know, years later. No, it wasn't even years later. It would have been, it would have been roughly uh, after he was born, probably a year and a half, maybe two years old. Um, he was sitting in the uh, the grocery uh, cart. No, it was a baby. And uh, Betty had left the cart there, walked down the aisle. You know how you walk down the aisle because you're looking for something up on the shelf, and she sure. turned around, and this individual had lifted him up out of the uh, cart, and she started screaming and everything. He set him back down and ran out of the store. So abductions are really something that's almost a parent's nightmare, and that was the situation with this child. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. You do mention that in the book. Uh, pardon me. You do write right. about that uh, incredible, more than coincidence, and relation right. to this this case. Um, you say that uh, she was eventually found. Um, and what was the condition that she was found in? What were some of the circumstances? She was unfortunately um, found at a park, uh, Whittier Narrows, and. When they found her, she had this puka shell neck- necklace wrapped around her um, throat, and she had been strangled. The body was partially covered, um, and it didn't take them long to ascertain, obviously, that she had been that she had been murdered, um, and also and also sodomized as well. Uh, she was only nine years old, um, so that was very upsetting. Fecal matter. Um, immediately was 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 spotted um, on her um, on her rear, and so they know that it was a situation where she had been uh, brutally murdered and also sodomized as well. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, Cheryl um, Christie Gutierrez, correct? Yes. Um, and at the same time, for our listeners, the Hillside Strangler has terrorized, stranglers have terrorized Los Angeles around this same time or previous. Correct. That's correct. And, and, and actually, when he ended up getting caught, 
uh, in Nevada, when the sheriff's department went out there, or the LAP, when they went out there, they thought that possibly at first that he was the Hillside Strangler. Mm-hmm. But they they did not know that he was the one associated with these deaths. They were thinking at a whole different level. So it, it didn't take them long to figure out what was going on because he basically told them, you know, what he had done. So then the gears switched. Let's put it that way. So then the investigation opened up into not only her death, uh, but several other deaths. So they, you know, they had to go to Nevada to do this. But then I'm sure we're going to get into what happened all out there because those were part of the problems that created um, the dilemma, so to speak, things mm-hmm. that I had found out. So tell us what happens in the investigation to to find the killer of Cheryl Christie Gutierrez. And then uh, you talk about July 20th and Deanna Musquidge, which was 16 years old, is uh, also missing. You know, here's the problem. The problem is parents try to tell kids, don't hitchhike. Don't get into cars with strangers. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens. Let's back up on Cheryl. Cheryl was upset because she wanted to go home. They were at the park. They were swimming. They were all having a good time, but she wanted to go home, and her sibling was not ready to go home yet. So she was upset. And Michael Madsen saw something that was going on because she was crying and basically lured over to the car and then told her he would take her home. So she got into the car. The other ones, the same thing. The only ones who didn't voluntarily get into the car was the last person, which we'll get to, because she was in the batter. And um, so luring people in, people telling their children don't hitchhike is always always the message that they need to do. So the investigation, to answer your question, you want to know specifically on the investigation, um, that would have taken place in Nevada. So do you want me to switch gears and go into Nevada, into the investigation of what happened? Yes, do that. Okay. What happened was that Michael Matson on his last situation in California, he actually did not kill his victim. His victim basically pleaded for her life, et cetera, and for some reason uh, he didn't kill her. Now, when he was interviewed, he said the only reason why he didn't kill her was because she was pleading for her life, but that he also couldn't find a rock big enough to bash her head in. Right. So he ended up taking her and dropping her back off. So. Mm-hmm. He realized afterwards, now he has left a victim alive that could describe him and his vehicle, etc. So he takes off and goes to Nevada. So he gets to Nevada, but he doesn't really have that much money. He just, on the spur of the moment, decided he better leave. So he drives to North Las Vegas where he's just about running out of gas. So he goes to the local junior college there, and by that time it's at night. So what happened was he spotted a female student going to her car. And he basically, at gunpoint, forced her into the car because he wanted some money for gas. What she didn't know is that the gun was actually a BB gun. It wasn't a real gun. It was a BB gun. But she don't know that. It's at night. It's a gun. Get in the car. And that's what she did. So he 
forcing us into the car. He knows that he doesn't have a He takes us to the secluded area and uh, basically rapes her, but he doesn't have gas. So then they go back to the gas station. They go back to a gas station. Incredible. And at the gas station, she figures out that she's got to get away. This is her opportunity. And when he's out there, out of the out of the car, she basically jumps out and and and, and, and runs into the station and tells the, the attendant what's going on. So of course they call the police. Pat Dingle was a detective at the North Las Vegas Police Department. So he gets the call at night, and he goes up there, and he starts looking around, and of course he finds, uh, you know, the, the you know the, the car, and he starts investigating the car, but he's still not sure of what's going on, to make a long story short. Right. It's at night. He goes back. But then the victim ends up going to the hospital, and they end up calling, and so he's able to interview, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they put the word out on the vehicle license plate. The vehicle license plate is to California and comes back under Michael B. Masson. But he's not equating that with anything going on in California. Of course, he's just equating it to this particular situation with this victim in in North Las Vegas. So he puts out on the teletype because it's too late at that point to call California. So he puts out on the teletype, you know, description of what happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He ends up getting a call from L.A. County about this particular situation. And the investigators end up going out because, again, they're thinking he's the hillside triangle situation. Right. But during this time, Pat Dingle figures out, wait a minute, there's something going on because Pat felt that this particular individual, you know, th- there's something going on with him. Now, he's not in custody. This, I'm sorry, I should back up. He's not in custody yet, all right? So so even though the word was put out on the teletype and, and they got a call about it, they weren't going out there yet because Masson hadn't been captured. Right. So Masson ends up going up to uh, driving to because he had grandparents that lived in Eli. I guess that's how he's been, Nevada. Mm -hmm. So the sheriff up there, Sheriff Robinson, knew about a family that was in that particular area. Because, again, when you send out a teletype, it goes out all across the country, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So they picked up on it, and he goes to the grandparents' house. And just happened to you know knock on the door, say, "Listen, we're looking for a Michael D. Matson. Uh, would you happen to know him?" Well, meanwhile, Matson had driven up there, and again, it was still a, a gas issue. So he ends up going to his grandparents' house, walking, you know, gets to his grandparents' house. So when Sheriff Robinson got there, the grandparents came to the door, and they said, "Do you know Michael D. Matson?" And of course, they looked at each other. Well, yeah, that's our grandson. Well, do you know where he is? Well, yeah, he's inside sleeping. So of course, Robinson was shocked because he got lucky <laughs> at that point. Yeah, you know, from that perspective. Uh, it's not always that easy. Trust me when I tell you. But you know, what's he done now? I mean, so the grandparents even knew that he had a bad background. But that's still their grandson. They're not going to turn him away. They don't know what he's done. Most recently, they only know what happened in Oregon. So Matson comes to the door, and Robinson takes him into custody, takes him back to the station. Pat Dingle and his partner, Reed, they find out because Robinson calls and says, hey, I got your guy in custody, basically. So they drive up there. 
And uh, Pat told me, as soon as he looked at this individual, in his mind, this guy was pure evil. And again, he did not fully know everything that Masson had done. He only knew about what happened with this victim in North Las Vegas. Right. On the ride back, he was in the back with Matson. And Pat told me this, and it just, you know, from my perspective, being with my background and even being a police officer, that, you know, I was a reserve police officer as well with L.A. County Sheriff's Department. It was it was just wrong. He confided in me that he, in fact, had taken his gun and put it in Matson's mouth and, you know, threatened him, et cetera. And that, to me, was wrong. But, again, nobody knew this at that time. This is information that came out um, way after his conviction. I'll get to that right. you know, a little bit later. But at any rate, he gets him out. And, and of course, they they did read him his rights. They told him that, you know, he had a right to remain silent, et cetera. So they did what they were supposed to do from that standpoint. So the ride back from Eli was about three hours. So they get back to North Las Vegas. And that's where things, in my opinion, started going. To me at that time, the knowledge that I had when I was doing the research where things started going a little strange. Because at the time of the appeal, I did not know that Pat had done that with a gun in the mouth, et cetera. I didn't find that out until, right. you know, years later, to make a long story mm-hmm. short. Right. And that was after the uh, after the appeal. <clears throat> but what happened was Pat put the word out that he was in custody. Then, as a result of that, he, he learns that Matson may have been involved in other crimes in California. And he had suspected that this guy has probably done something like this before. Mm-hmm. So now information is starting to come in. So Pat, in my opinion starts looking at this like the highlight of his career. And in, in conversations that I had with him, Pat was a very unique person in terms of his background. I mean, he became a detective at a very early age because he was just very good at what he did. And so he he starts developing a relationship. So when you start talking about an investigation, at, at some point he's entitled to have counsel present during these kinds of conversations quote, right, you know, investigation type of questions. Matson had already said that he wanted to talk to an attorney, and that was not afforded to him at that point. Pence started developing a relationship with Matson. He started luring him in, in my opinion. So you want to talk about a gangster? Pat at that point was becoming a gangster himself because right. he looked at Matson as pure the evil, he wanted to make sure Matson was going to end up getting convicted. And so he started doing things that police officers should not be doing because why? He he got emotionally involved with the situation. And in my opinion, police officers cannot get emotionally involved with the system. We're not the judge and jury. Our job and his job was to arrest him. And, yes, you can ask him questions, but he has a right to counsel. And this is what this is all about. He would go and and have Michael come into the interrogation room, give him coffee, cigarettes. Um, at one point, he even promised him some drugs. I mean, he was luring him into this false sense of security, and that to me was wrong. But at any rate, he had put out that Matson's in custody, 
And, you know, different agencies came out to talk to him. And, again, mm-hmm. that's when Pat started realizing it, that he had really caught possibly a person that I don't want to say would enhance his career, but was probably like a career situation that everybody mm-hmm. wants to get, you know, with somebody like this because it's a serial killer or whatever the case may be. Sure. And uh, and that's exactly what happened. I think Pat let that go to his head. And, again, when they came out to interrogate him, they he has a right to counsel. Now, um, Pat had been in touch with the attorney, which was the local public defender's office, and they had said, yeah, go ahead and talk to him, which to me is wrong. But whatever, it happened. So they would come out and they questioned him. They, they, they quickly realized during this invest- part of the investigation that he was not the Hillside Strangler. What Matson right. told them was, I can tell you about some things, you know, that I did that you don't even know about. And then, of course, your ears are going to perk up. Well, what are you sure. talking about? So that's when he turns around, and basically with all of this and with Pat's influences, et cetera, and luring him into a false sense of security, he basically tells them about the crimes and even draws a map for one of the for one of the victims where they can find it. So that that opened up the door to there being issues and his violation of his of his rights. I, I'm just going on. I don't know if you if you have questions in between any of this because I'm kind of just moving forward with this. The, well, you're giving, you us, any you're giving us information. the The thing is now once this once this has happened, once he's Dingle has got this confession, you also. When we talked about you hearing about this case of the Gutierrez, Cheryl Gutierrez being killed and having that fateful conversation with your wife, Betty, you now find out information about Matson involved with this in another event where you're, again, this fateful intersection here where you come to be aware of this. And then you tell us how Ron Smith... Your professor, law professor in law school, who had taken you under your wing, gives you a call. So, tell us about this event and the event right. where your professor calls you. Well, here's what happened. Ron was my first year. Ron was was my instructor in my first year, and 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 Ron contacts me and says because he knew I had an interest also in criminal law. Ron contacts me and says, basically, hey, Jimmy, I just got appointed by Justice Roseburg to handle a death penalty case. Because in California, any time that you're convicted uh, and sentenced to death, it's an automatic appeal to the California Supreme Court. So Ron calls me and says, hey, listen, would you be interested in working with me on this case, you know, on this appeal? And hey, as a law student, you jump at an opportunity like that, of course. I mean, sure. you know, you can practice law and never have, you know, in a lifetime and never have an opportunity like that. Mm-hmm. So I jumped at the opportunity without knowing all of the details, just a death penalty cases heading to the United, excuse me, to the California Supreme Court. So, of course, you're excited. So there was like 4,000 pages of transcripts and exhibits. And uh, so once I got those and I'm starting to go through those exhibits and the transcripts, et cetera, I realized what this guy has done because now it's in detail with all yeah. of these victims and what he actually did to them, et cetera. So 
I start having that conversation because, you know, it's the pillow talk conversation. They say, you know, it's my wife. We're talking about these things. I'm like, oh, my God, let me tell you what this guy did, you know. And that's where the conflict started because at that point she's like, you know, wait a minute. You know, you can't help somebody like this, you know. And then I started looking at my personal values versus my, my, I mean, my yeah, my personal values, my moral values versus you know, the requirement that you have to represent to the best of your ability, so the ethical responsibilities to a client. So that took some soul-searching. I mean, I was an altar boy. I was an Eagle Scout, went to all the Catholic schools. I mean, this guy was everything that I wasn't. I mean, I was just the opposite. Yeah. So once you put it in my mind about the fact that you can't represent somebody like this, I mean, it, it is something for you to think about, you know. So while I was thinking about it, of course, I was still reading and doing some of the things that I had to do anyway because I still had a responsibility to run. So eventually I had to tell I had to tell Betty that, well, you know, I've made a decision, and the decision is I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, assist Ron in this, in this particular case, in this appeal. And that's when she really became upset because it was like, listen, you can't do this. If that guy gets off, we're done. And, you know, that's not something you want to hear. You expect, support. No. Um, you know, any any spouse, in my opinion, should, should always support another spouse and, and understanding what the um, implications of a comment like that may be. So then that that's when the conflict sets in, you know, at a higher level. And I had to just simply tell her, look, if I'm getting into this profession, it's clear that, you know, you can't get out of it just because you find the subject matter repugnant. And right. what I'm not going to do is be influenced, you know, one way or another, you know, regarding, you know, career decisions. You know, we had the conversation because you're a spouse, we talk about these things, but you can't decide for me or force me to decide in a manner that's going to be contrary to a career that I'm getting ready to enter. So, she obviously was unhappy about that, but, the, but then again, we didn't have the outcome yet. So it's if, you know, he gets off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, well, whatever the case may be, it's my job working with Ron to be able to look at all of the possibilities as to whether or not any of his rights were violated, the case. Because at that point, keep in mind, Dan, he's a, he was a self-confessed killer at that point. So right. it's not like we didn't have information as if, you know, he got railroaded, you know, in the courtroom, so to speak. It wasn't like that. I mean, you know, his confession got in, basically, and that led towards, you know, toward him being convicted. So having having said that, I'm going to move on with this. She was not happy. Things were a little bit strained, but the outcome wasn't there yet. So, you know, things settled to a certain extent anyway. Mm-hmm. So then I go through all of this, and I'm looking, and I'm reading the transcripts. I'm reading police reports. And when I'm reading the police reports and everything, I'm looking at the fact that he was given his rights at the time that he was picked up in Eli, Nevada, from Sheriff Robinson. It's a three-hour drive, from, you know, as I mentioned earlier, from Eli back to North Las Vegas. So when... They, when Pat Dingle continued to ask him questions after they got back, that to me was problematic because that was going on before he had actually secured, 
you know, proper counsel, which, again, was a public defender at that time. And I won't right. say anything negative about public defenders. They, Dan, you know, I mean, they've, they've got a list of cases that they have to handle, um, and it makes it very, very tough on them. But they still sure. do a great job, in my opinion, as best as they can anyway. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was problematic. And I looked at that, did some research on it, and then had a conversation with Ron. So I go to Ron and I say, Ron, uh, you know, I've concluded my my thoughts on this. I looked through everything. So Ron and I agreed to meet. So when we met, Ron was all excited because he had found an issue that they had read the wrong jury instruction so that instead of Matson getting the death penalty, that Matson should have gotten life in imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And I'm looking at Ron thinking to myself, okay, why does he not see what I see here? He's talking about the wrong jury instruction. And what I'm looking at and reading is that his rights got violated under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. And, you know, I'm looking at a bigger issue here. (laughs) I'm thinking maybe I missed the boat. So I get into this conversation with Ron about it. I said, Ron, I, I, I think there's another issue here. And he's like, what are you talking about? So I start relating some of the same facts that I related to you. And I said, I think his rights have been violated under the Fifth and Sixth Amendment. And Ron was like, what? You're crazy. No, 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 no. You know. And again, I'm just a lawsuit. So I argued it so I ended up arguing it so hard that Ron said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll include your argument in the brief. Okay. Well, when Ron actually, when we actually, you know, you only have one hour to argue in front of the California Supreme Court. So Ron was arguing his issue for about the first 10 minutes. And then the justice looked at him and said, you know, Mr. Smith, there's a bigger issue here than the wrong jury instruction. So then he switched to my issue for the last 50 minutes. And as a result of that, now, I, I don't want to get into you, you don't want me to get into the conclusion, do you? <laughs> what do you want me to do with the conclusion? Right, okay, I'll stop right there. At any rate, he did he did make my argument, and the justices, you know, um, went out, you know, to you know to, to to debate it. They don't make you know decisions right on the spot. So let me just put it that way. Yeah, let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is Zocdoc. When you need a doctor, you need a doctor now. Not in a few days, not in a few weeks, and definitely not in a few months. If you need to see an MD, ASAP. We've got a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash TrueMurder and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to see a doctor. ZocDoc is great. You should try it. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash TrueMurder and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash TrueMurder. 
Now, Jim, we were talking about the appeal courts and the issues that you and Ron Smith brought up in the briefs in front of the Supreme Court. Tell us California what Supreme happens. Court. Pardon me? Yeah, the California Pardon? Supreme Court, just to be clear. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, the California. So what happens as a result of this uh, this argument um, in terms of a reversal? What happens? Well, look, first of all, there's another point that I want to make, okay, if you don't mind. The, the problem is with the judicial system and the, the, what the book is truly trying to point out as well is that when it comes to the judicial system, we have to leave the emotions out of the judicial system. And that's very difficult when you have crimes that are committed like this because people are going to be emotionally tied to it. Police officers can be emotionally, emotionally tied to it. But what I'm also trying to get across in the book is that we have to leave the emotions out of the process. If, if you don't do that and you make the mistakes like Pat Dingle made because he got emotionally tied to this, then it's what ends up happening is that the criminal can actually get off. The criminal can actually walk. And then the victim's rights okay, are gone at that point. The, the, the victims need to be, um, their rights need to be protected as well. And when you get emotionally involved with this, and, and it's hard, and I get it, but police officers, judges, um, I want to say the jury, but they do, they, the juries, they, they do try to reach the emotions of the juries when they're, when they're trying to make a decision as well. Um, and that, that's a little, bit, a little bit different. The people in the process that are part of the judicial system, to me, are the ones that I'm really kind of focused on. And police officers in general, they can't get tied to it. They are not the judge and jury. And what Dingle did was that he was steering things into a direction based upon his emotions to ensure that this person, in fact, was going to be convicted. Now, let me just back up for a second, because remember, we also talked about the fact that he was in Nevada and he committed a Nevada crime. Right. He did not want to stand trial in Nevada. He did not want to be convicted in Nevada because he felt that the jail systems in California were better than the jail systems that would be in Nevada. And he even made a comment that he would rather go to a California facility where he could walk, he could work in the kitchen because he'd have access to liver, which he could use to help stimulate himself. So this guy was really, I mean, he was really off in a lot of different respects. Let's just put it that yeah. way. So that's why they basically gave the opportunity for him to be transferred. Now, his attorney uh, at that time okayed the fact that he would be transferred. And then later on, he did not realize that Matson had done the things that he had done in California, which I don't understand. But, again, I, I can't put myself in his shoes of why he did or didn't do his due diligence. But he okayed the fact that Matson would be transferred to California. Otherwise, Matson could have been convicted in Nevada and, you know, done jail time there before he came back to California. And, and obviously with a crime like this, they don't want that. They, Californians would want him back here. So everybody was in agreement at that point. And, again, Matson had, had confessed, et cetera. The other point that I want to make is that the families, people don't realize it's not just the victims, it's the families that can be so impacted by these different types of events. To this day, some of these families 
you know, cannot forget, you know, what has happened. Um, and so their rights have to be vindicated to know and to feel that the person responsible uh, has truly paid the price. Now, you asked me what was the, you asked me basically what was the outcome of the decision by the California Supreme Court, correct? Yes. They reversed the conviction based upon my argument. So he was, he was, it was, it was reversed. But what happened was is that the California, excuse me, the uh, Superior Court, the prosecuting attorneys decided to retry the case. And that's what they did. When they retried the case, he was again found guilty. But this time they excluded the confession. And the reason they did that, obviously, is because he was, it was in violation of his rights. Mm-hmm. Because of the crimes that he had committed, they just did not want to say, okay, he's out and end the story. So they basically retried the case. But remember what I told you, the last victim he did not kill. Yeah, She was able to come back and testify against him. And that's what got him convicted for the second time. Yeah. His appeals, I kid you not, these guys, when they get convicted and they're up there on death row in the whole nine yards, these guys all become jailhouse lawyers. They all know each other. They all talk about the appeals. The appeals process is part of the problem. But let's back up to my personal relationship. At that point, I've done my job. My wife is not unhappy because the guy ended up being retried and did not get back out on the street. Mm-hmm. So that changed everything at that point, you know, in terms of the, 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 the concerns that Betty may have had. And, of course, I was happy because, you know, my marriage was intact at that point, and he didn't get off and I had done what I was supposed to do. He spent, I, can't, I kid you not, and I was involved in looking at some of the appeals on him over the years, and, uh, and I had transcripts, I had, I had secured some of, the, um, some of the appeals and all of that uh, prior to writing uh, the book as well. So I had access to a lot more information. In addition to that, I had access uh, to Pat Dingle. Mm-hmm. Pat Dingle made me promise okay, about certain things that he had told me right. that I would not be able to put in the book. Pat Dingle has passed away. Michael Matson passed away in prison, by the way. But he was masterful at all of his appeals over the years. I told you, he's a gangster. He died in prison, and that's the good news. But then I was able to write the book because the information that I had learned from Pat could not have been used to... Because anytime you have additional information, it could always go toward the appeal and possibly get once again his conviction reversed. Right after Pat passed away, which is in the book, I was able to divulge some of the information that I had that I sat on for all of that time. So Matson died in prison. Um, one of his family members took the body, and he's buried. He's buried in Nevada. Oh, actually, he's not that far. Probably, from, I think it's from his grandparents' house. So that's what happened. Some of the issues that we didn't explore here were in mm-hmm. your in your argument before the California Supreme Court. You interviewed 
Pat Dingle, like you say, and then he confided in you things like putting the gun in in the mouth of Matson for a three and a half hour right. ride, and that and that he was going to circumvent his rights. He didn't care about his rights. He was he knew that this person was guilty. But some of the issues that you had, you you were a a, 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 a police officer, a law enforcement officer with the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department for twenty years. So you know what a cop meant, and you had your moral compass uh, straight. Um, what are the things that you argued, and uh, especially things like that California had different uh, different rules, and as far as uh, Pat Dingle becoming an agent uh, when negotiating with other an, people? Right, he became an agent of an agent of California at that point. So mm-hmm. they do have they do have different rules regarding that. And that was one of the reasons why uh, it stood up, because of the fact that when he started the investigation based upon the crimes in California and the information that he was soliciting, he then become a, he then he then became a part of the law enforcement agency, so to speak, of California, not Nevada at that point. If he had stuck to just the Nevada crime, that's one thing, but that's not what he did. And he ended up overstepping his bounds because, again, I think he looked at this as a career situation where you don't get to get involved in necessarily a, a serial killer and then capturing a serial killer. So he actually became an agent of the law enforcement agencies when he's pumping Madison for this information and turning the information over because he actually came out and testified as well. And, of course, when he testified, he um, he perjured himself because – he was asked whether or not he had, you know, given Matson his rights, you know, every single time. Mm-hmm. And he testified to that. And that was not true. He did not do that. Because as I told you, he would have cigarette breaks with him, coffee breaks with him, and be asking him questions and everything, and luring him into a false sense of security. So he violated the rights even with doing that, and even violated his own principles. Because he was a, you know, Dan, he was a very highly principled individual, but he let this get under his skin. Sure. And that was the bad part about it. So he became an agent of the law enforcement agencies in California by the way he solicited the information, received the information, and passed the information on, and then he actually purged himself as well. Mm-hmm. Let's stop for this uh, message from our sponsor. What if you could have a career? where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, you talked about, uh, as well, that the, the felony of uh, 
the felony crimes of rape and kidnap that were only given to the courts, or they, they only knew about this information from Matson himself, and there was no evidence backing that up. Tell us how that was an issue in this appeal as well. His confession, because remember, all these other individuals were deceased at that point. So only Matson could have related any of these things, such as the kidnappings and what happened, etc. The only person who had anything, I mean, the last victim, of course, not the last, the last California victim, um, was able to identify him and, test, and testify against him in court. But everything else before that was information that came out of Matson's mouth. They had nothing to tie him to any of these crimes. There was no evidence found. There was no DNA sample. There was none of that. So it was only that the information was provided by Matson, and that information was solicited in violation of his Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. That was the problem. How did they make the retrial? How did they get around not having the confession? And you just mentioned that they didn't have any direct evidence of any of the details of the kidnap and rape other than his confession. So how did they get this conviction without that evidence? The, the, the question normally that comes up is things like double jeopardy. Well, wait a minute, he had already been tried, um, blah, 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 can you do it again? And the answer is yes, okay, because mm -hmm. they find that there's a reversal because it was a problem with the, with the way it was conducted. Because sometimes people don't understand that, so that's why I'm explaining that. Um, so he, he does have an opportunity. They do have an opportunity to retry. They just can't use the information, which was the confession, uh, in his and in, in the way his uh, his uh, confession was obtained. They had to leave those those pieces out. But remember, the last victim was not killed, so they could use the testimony of that person to bring him back in and retry him based her testimony, right. as an example. So they can always bring it back. They just can't use certain things. So she was able to testify in terms of what had happened as well. The information around there, uh, around the confession, was still available. Mm -hmm. The confession is one thing, but he had other knowledge where he drew the map, he did things of that nature that still linked him back to a certain extent. Right. And remember that I told you that the maintenance person had seen a little girl with him uh, with the car. So they right. pieced together enough other information to say what this... Because remember, the jury only has to has to convict, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And they had beyond yeah. a reasonable doubt. I mean, I mean you know, so it, it still satisfies it. So ultimately, he was sent, he was sentenced to death again. You, you talk about him being a gamester behind bars and, uh, again utilizing the the his uh legal ability to be system. able to yeah he was able to game this system for a long time until his death wasn't he yeah because people don't understand the appeal process and that's part of the frustrations quite frankly that the that the families have the families of the victims that they have uh, these types of issues where a person can manipulate the system. Because remember, he can go to, let, let's, let's just take the conviction, the last conviction. Well, he can appeal that to the Court of Appeals. So what did he argue on his first one? Was that the jury was not made up of a jury of his peers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so that's the first mm -hmm. argument. Those aren't my peers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and my attorney was incompetent. 
they make those standard sure. arguments. So then you lose sure. that at the appeal process, and then you appeal it to the Cali- to the Supreme Court. Then yeah. once all of the appeals are exhausted in California, what do they turn to? Now they do a federal writ of habeas corpus that California's holding me illegally. And now the process starts all over again. It's gamesters. These guys are gamesters at that level. You you talk about, too, the the political issues, uh, especially with appointees, and and also there's, uh, again, something different in California regarding this. Uh, Tell us about how politics has a big influence in this, especially with people with pro pro death penalty statuses or um as opposed to the other people opposing them you know what's interesting is in california is that we have we're one of only one of two states where the supreme court justices actually can be voted out we don't have life tenure here for california supreme court justices and again there's only two states that have that and justice rose bird as an example she and two others maybe three, they they turned around and got, you know, ended up getting rid of the death penalty in California. So that's how she ended up getting voted out. So there, right. there are political issues that are associated in politics that is associated with this, and the California voters got very upset about that, voted them out because they wanted it back. That's how, that's how Charles Manson got off of death row was because of Justice uh, Roseburg, as an example. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, um, so... The politics plays into it because you get these different governors. Like right now, we have a governor that says, you know, no, you know, there's not going to be any executions in California. So politics right. does play a role. I always thought it was interesting for a liberal state like California to have the death penalty, but then have this obvious no one hardly is actually put to death from death right. row, and yet uh, there still is this desire in that state by some people to continue with this, and the the time and the money and expense, um, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be worth it. You know, that's part of the problem is that, again, people work off of emotions. Uh, the reason why they, if they think we get rid of the death penalty altogether, that's going to create a surge with people killing people, and then you don't have to worry about it because of the fact that you're never going to be put to death. California has been up and down on this for, I mean, decades. And then with the lethal injection, that became a whole big issue also. So then they suspended it based upon the lethal injection arguments that whether or not there's going to be pain, no pain, things of that nature. It's just going to always be um, a political, you know, you know, football, so to speak. Sure. Uh, Newsom says no, no execution now. But if Newsom uh, loses on his next election because he 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 won the recall situation, that's right. Uh, and now you turn around and you get a Republican governor, we'll say, then you know that could all be once again, you know, death penalty is back. So they're yeah. still on death row. They're just not doing the execution. And I think there's 900 people on death row or something like that right now. But they may never they, they may never be executed. Who knows? And it costs a lot of money to put these to leave these guys on death row. Yeah. You talked about um, Matson's death in two thousand and nine. How did he die, um, Providence? You know he 
you know, it, it, it was weird. I was out of the country at the time, and they were trying to locate me uh, to, to ask me questions about him at the time of his death. And uh, he died because he, he uh, uh, illness. Even even in his last appeals, this man had appeals almost up to his death. He, last time he was in court, he was in court in a wheelchair. So, you know, he very well could have died from complications, as I understand it, associated with HIV. Because remember, he he was, I don't want to use the word, okay, I'll say sexually deviant. We'll, we'll put it that way. So who knows? I already told you about how he's, you know, felt that he was female in certain respects. So eventually all of that caught up to him, to make a long story short. So he, he died in prison, basically. Not on death row. At the time that he died, he was put into a prison a hospital at another location. So he was not in death row because um, his time was coming. Let's just put it that way. Was there any exploration of other murders? Was there any suspicion that he had done other murders? They had suspicions. There was no doubt about it. You know, there's a lot of unsolved murders out there. And he even de- denied a couple of them, you know, uh, after he ended up coming back to California. He made some denials. So there's a couple that have, that have gone, we'll just say, that were never solved. Let's just put it that way. But that pointed in his direction. So, again, the tough part for the victim's families that he was probably the one, but they'll never know for sure. And we talked about your marriage to Betty. Did Was this case and your work on it uh, instrumental in your split with Betty? You know, it's in a way, the answer is probably yes, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because the support mechanisms. Well, to me, spouses always have to support each other. Mm-hmm. And she was not a person, in my opinion, that supported my professional ambitions. Let's just put it that way. And so that was the beginning of understanding that she was not a supportive person. So, so I'll leave it. I'll leave that like that. Yeah. <laughs> you write that you didn't pursue criminal law, and you instead um, went to represent employees in employment law. And you have a very not successful employees, business. Employers. Not employees, yes. employers. Just yes, oh, pardon me. Yes, employers, pardon me. Much different. Yes, much right. different. Yeah, and you also have a different field. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's a different field altogether. You know, when you work in criminal law, you know, and you're defending people, again, you're in a situation where you're defending people that may be contrary to your to your values as well. Some people do it, it's not an issue. I, I eventually became an L.A. County Deputy Sheriff Reserve. Uh, I was a captain at the time that I retired. So I was all about still enforcing the laws and doing things what I felt was the right way to, to do that. I have written, uh, I guess, I'd, maybe we shouldn't talk about it, but let's, let's talk about just um, this book and uh, the first book that you wrote as well. The first book that I wrote was Write the Council. But in that book, I could not put information, because remember I told you that Pat Dingle had told me some things? Mm-hmm. So when I wrote the first book, I could not include information in that book that I had because 
Masson was still going through his appeals. And information that I had could have, again, took it to the California Supreme Court and possibly reversed uh, his his case, mm-hmm. his second case. So I had to wait. And after Pat had passed away and Michael Matson had passed away, then I was free to do something more comprehensive than I was able to do the first time. I even interviewed Pat's wife after Pat had passed away. And mm-hmm. she gave me information. I actually interviewed one of the family members um, by marriage of Cheryl Gutierrez as well. So you have situations where now you're free to give more information than you were before. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating. Did. It's a fascinating your interview with uh, with Pat Dingle and how candid he is. Again, he gave those conditions, but he trusted you with this information. And it is uh, fascinating his attitude and and his how candid he was that he didn't care about this person's rights whatsoever. You know, part of that is, and, and the first time I met Pat, uh, Pat and I, we just hit it off. And, you know, he respected, you know, what I had done, and he didn't have an issue with it. And, and again, because they retried him, and, <laughs> and that's what convicted a second time. Uh, so he, he yeah. respected the digital system, so let me make that clear. It's just that he yeah. got emotionally tied to this one situation. Yeah. And that was what was bad. Yeah. And you understood his plight as well. I'm sorry? And you understood his plight, his conflict as well. Yeah. You understood yeah, his position. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Look, nobody wants to hear about somebody that kills kids, rapes them, yeah. kidnaps them, sodomizes them, murders them. We, as a society, we're never going to endorse that kind of behavior, and no. that and that and that can create these emotional responses. I get it, but I'm only saying that when you're part of that system, it's almost like you have to walk the person down the aisle, so to speak. You know, you treat them right, you give them every courtesy, you give them back because once again, you're not the judge and jury. And it's not for us to determine why somebody does what they do. And that's why in the case itself, you know, in the transcripts, I'm able to read about the different psychologists that talked about why he was the way he was, et cetera. That, that, that's why those, those experts are in place. This is why he did what he did. And people don't think about that in the judicial system. What happened? This is what happened, but this is why it happened. And sometimes that's enough to get somebody off or to get somebody you know, with a reduced sentence. I mean, there's so many different factors. Pat Dingle did not want that to happen. He wanted everything coming out because he did not want to see this guy walk under any circumstances. And that's not and was not his job. Yeah. Yes, it's an incredible story. I want to thank you so much for coming on, Jim, and talking about defending a serial killer, the right to counsel. Um, tell our audience about your uh, weekly radio show uh, and your blog. I have a weekly. Thank you. I have a weekly radio show, LA Talk Radio. It's uh, it actually is streaming. I think some people would call it a podcast, uh, but I've been mm-hmm. doing that uh, every Sunday, three o'clock California time, and we talk about a variety of things. It really started out because I'm, I was also a certified terrorist investigator with the LA County Sheriff's Department, 
So I talk about a lot of things on international terrorism, domestic terrorism, et cetera, uh, how people can be safe um, under those trying times. I've done uh, active shooter training. I've trained probably over 30,000 people in active shooter training uh, across the country. I've spoken in front of political groups, political associations, et cetera, business associations as well, businesses and schools. The blog is something that I write about my regular nine to five. So I've done that probably about 12 years where every Monday I put out a blog on Listen Up with Jim Potts, and I put out information for employers, for managers and supervisors uh, that they can read on recent cases, situations that they need to be aware of, updates in the law and things of that nature. Oh, that's fantastic. You're very busy. Thank you so much, Jim Potts, for coming on and talking about your book, Defending a Serial Killer, The Right to Counsel. It's been fascinating. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Jim. You have a great evening. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.